Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Co-Creating with AI. To together with us today, we have Malcolm Sparks, founder and CTO of Juxt, which is the database we use at Multiply. Malcolm, welcome, and how are you today? Hello, um, I'm fine. Great to be here. And also, also with me, as always, is Rasmus. Are you good today, Rasmus? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. It's I'm in the city today, so not at my house, which is... Uh, you know, Always a nice change to, to mix it up a bit. And also, by the way, I mean, easy, easy slip of the tongue, but the, the database that Juxt and Malcolm has built is called XTDB, uh, which is, you know, the, the best oh. of a relational and a graph database, yeah. uh, which we use in Multiply too. So uh, what did our, I say? This case. You said Juxt is the database, but you know, oh, okay. it's, it's fine. Uh, that's the company and, and X, of course, XTDB is the database. Cool. And so Malcolm, uh, for our listeners that are not familiar with you, do you want to give a short introduction to yourself? Yeah, I give a quick personal introduction. I'm, I, you know, I fell in love with computers in about 1981 with a ZX81 and learned basic and all that stuff. So I, I, I became a developer fairly early on to a CS degree and kind of started my career, I suppose, properly in 94. And then, um, yeah, it was kind of a, like worked in databases, Oracle and forms development, and then discovered Java on the kind of almost on the day that it came out and, and kind of was completely involved, you know, fell in love with that and, and uh, object orientation and, and so on. That took me all the way up until kind of 2009, 2010. And then I kind of was working in a bank and discovered a language called Clojure, which is a the derivative of, of Lisp, of that family of languages. Uh, and so, uh, again, I kind of um, converted to Clojure, used it for a small project and and was completely, you know, sold on its, uh, you know, unique value propositions. And, and so have been working with Clojure since that time. Um, uh, in 2012, 2013, uh, kind of left the bank and started a company with John Pither called Juxt. So we've just finished our, you know, we just had our 10-year party last month. So we're, we're 10 years old this year. Amazing. Congratulations. And how, how big is this company now? Um, we're, we're about, I, I think we're about 70 full-time employees and, and mm. about the same number of kind of contractors. Um, yeah. And, and can we do a lot of work in, in investment banks, fintechs, um, but, you know, globally mm. around the world, different industries. Is it fair to say that database companies are a special breed? Do you think you're, is well, there something that sets... It, that makes that a category of, of culturally as well as yeah yeah I think I, I mean we're we're a, a quite a different company in that we've um, we've built building products through just having one you know at least one leg in uh, consulting and working with customers and problems and seeing problems every day so um, you know there there are kind of types of products that come out of real world experience um, rather than uh, you know. Kind of, products that are created with ivory tower thinking uh, and so we're very much a kind of hands dirty getting things done finding real problems and and and, and products are really for us a reflection of our experience uh, uh, which which i mean hopefully is a, is a good, good um uh, inception process for any product that you you know start with uh, deep problems that people have um, rather than inventing the problems you, you kind of experience them so very much real world uh, conception awesome Thank you. So Rasmus, you, I know you were excited about inviting Malcolm for uh, deeply philosophical reasons. Do you want to frame this episode and conversation for us? Sure. I mean, uh, this just started because, uh, you know, obviously we're using XTDB and Malcolm and I had the first chat a week or so ago. And, 
Then we got into all these fun topics of how the internet started and the ideas behind XTDB and of course Multiply and, and what we're using it for and our ideas behind it. So I think like a nice framing for today, just based on kind of what we found interesting in our first conversation, Malcolm, is kind of the co-creative internet. And just to sort of relate that back, I mean, you were obviously there, I wasn't, uh, but I, I know a little bit about, I guess, the history of the internet. And it began as read-write, uh, primarily via terminal before, you know, or like a text interface before, uh, you know, obviously Mosaic and, and the browsers came and the kind of GUI. Um, so for those who don't know, like at that point, and maybe you can fill this out, Malcolm, so correct me if I'm wrong, please. You know, you could, it, it was a little bit like every website was a Google Doc uh, that yes. had full, full share permissions. Uh, so that if I put up my website, it was a Google Doc that you could go in and edit, which is, of course, a very different kind of thing. And just touching back on co-creation, right, which is what we're passionate about and, and of course, what this podcast is about. Um, you know, if I can actually, if you create something, you put up your website and I can actually edit it. Now, that is a co-creative process, whereas what the Internet evolved into was, you know, a once again, just like the uh, kind of... Uh, mass media age before that uh, was more broadcast. I put up my website and you read it and look at it, which of course has its benefit. And then you had web 2.0 with like social media, etc. And you have a lot of platforms that allow, you know, more people to be publishers, etc. But there was like something quite fundamental there that is, from my understanding, um, also like insights or, or learnings or maybe uh, dreams that have, are behind like XTDB and of course behind Multiply, which I won't go in, into anymore now. So maybe you can just, you know, comment on that, Malcolm, like what was that like and what do you think got lost there? And also maybe lead that into like XTDB and the, like what it is and how it works and, and why. Yeah, I, I can tell the story. I'll tell the story of what it was like when the web came out for me. I mean, it's a very personal story, but you have to go back into, I think I discovered the web around, I think, 95, 96. In those days, that was kind of peak Microsoft Windows. Linux really wasn't, you know, I think it had been, I think Linux came out in around kind of 92, 93, but it was really much a kind of a hacker's thing. Um, and Macs weren't really that popular, so they were just used in design labs. So everyone had Windows. Um, you had these modems that you would connect to. You'd have to get a subscription with an internet service provider, and you would have these funny modems, which I'm sure you you know, might remember, just these things screaming, these, um, you know, the, the really, really loud noises going over the telephone. And then if somebody picked up your, your telephone, you'd kind of lose your internet connection. So it was really unstable. Uh, Windows was pretty unstable, uh, I think, uh, this is just Windows 3.1, just before Windows 95 came out, that kind of era. And the first time I saw a browser was Netscape Navigator. And it was, it, Windows 3.1 was a pretty primitive operating system or UI. Uh, this thing was just amazing. It even had a, a logo that was animating of a kind of dinosaur. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like an alien piece of technology. And then when you got your modem connected and it would, um, and you would, type a url into this thing you would go to a website which would all be gray and black and every few days there would, would be new websites that would appear so you would go to sites like yahoo to find out what was hot what's new and it was this 
explosive growth. So every day, every time you logged in, you came back from work and you logged in. And that, in those days, it was kind of before companies uh, got onto the internet. Now, around 1997, I remember being in a department of people where there was just one internet terminal. You would have a queue and you would go and, and sit down and you would have your time reading your external email. Um, so very exciting time. And yes, in those days, Netscape Navigator, which was the, the browser that I think most people used it. There was Mosaic and other things, but um, that had you know, file edit. You could go and edit your page, your offline pages. You could open up a local HTML page and edit it as if, as Rasmus said, it was like a Google Doc. Um, and then you could publish that page, or you could you'd save it, and I think you'd FTP it up into your your little space. Most ISPs would give you a little FTP space. You'd FTP it up, and then you are on the internet. Um, and that was that was remarkable. So you went on created domain names and all that stuff. Can I ask you there, like just for my own understanding, so it wasn't like a Google Doc that I put up my website and you can actually edit the HTML of my website, but you can take that HTML and fork it and publish it yourself. Is that more like what it was? Yes. That's right. I'm yeah. trying to remember, okay. but it just okay. certainly okay. you could open up HTML files on your local disk and you could edit those. Uh, I'm not sure that there wasn't... This was a bit before WebDAV, although it's important to mention that uh, early on in HTTP, um, the, um, the, the intention was this, you know, uh, a lot of HTTP was built on, and uh, there's some extra methods that are called WebDAV, web uh, distributed, uh, what is it, um, authoring and versioning, um, document authoring and versioning, which were you, you were meant to have that experience of going to Rasmus site and clicking edit and being able to, put documents and uh, and so there's some extensions to http that have kind of been lost to history but http was intended to be a read write protocol um mm. so verbs like put and delete and things that were there for you to put and delete documents and the and the web is pretty much still like that you can you can view source on any web page and you can it's it's out and open how it's made it's just that nowadays um with the the big web apps, they're so complicated that it's very difficult to to learn from from that direction. But early days, I think a big driver for the web was exactly what you're describing with the open source aspect. Like everything was out in the open. Anyone that figured out how to do something cool also had yeah. to show how. And links were everywhere. You would edit, and uh, today if you edit a page, you'd have loads of JavaScript, or you wouldn't even you wouldn't see the HTML. You'd just see some sort of you, know, you wouldn't see the payload, you, you just, you know, the SPAs, you wouldn't be able to edit. But in those days, you'd edit the raw HTML content and links would be everywhere. And you discover this new thing and, wow, I've got this. And then you would link to that site. So there was no idea of keeping people on your site. You wanted people to, and we called it surfing the web because you would just be clicking from place to place and discovering yeah. things. And yeah. so the, the aspect of discovery, there was no walled gardens or things like Facebook that kept you into one place. There was later on things like AOL. I mean, that was a very alternative internet where they did keep you in. Uh, and there was a thing called Microsoft Blackbird and, and the mic, which became Microsoft Network, where they really, Microsoft tried to create a, a walled garden for people to stay in the confines. But people broke out of those things and AOL and Microsoft mm. Blackbird were not were not popular. They didn't survive. Where the web, the ability to discover things was, um, you know, was much more compelling. Uh, and that was the free internet. And it didn't really, 
it survived a few years and then there came along things like GeoCities, things that made uh, MySpace as well, make, making self-publication -publica much easier. Uh, things like Microsoft's, um, what was their tool that you used to edit a website? Can't remember. Um, uh, th 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 those tools became you know, very popular. So, pe pe so it became democratized. So not everybody knew HTML and it was quite scary. Um, so people started to to create things for people to, to publish their own websites. That's actually interesting. I just remembered, I had forgot about this completely, but I think I used Dreamweaver and something else to create like a website for my uh, like Warcraft clan in like when I was a teenager. I completely yeah. forgot about that. <laughs> I actually love that. And that was like, that was really funny because <clears throat> like that was also one of the transitions, right? Where... Uh, you know, you gradually reduced the engineering ability that you had to have to be a creator. And of course, now we've gone, you know, I don't know, maybe not the full way, but of course, we're taking our steps with Multiply as well to like allow creators, right, to create, uh, create products. Um, but yeah, so just to lean it back. So we have this backdrop in, in history, right? And we have these things that survived, so to say, and became the de facto standard um, that you touched upon. And we had these things that were there, but are not there anymore. If you just look back at this from your point of view and then go into XTDB, what, uh, what is XTDB and how does it work? How is it unique and why? Because uh, I think if I understood you correctly, and I mean, please don't you know, <laughs> uh, take my words here, but like that, that it had a lot of, like the background of that early era has influenced uh, your thinking. Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. The, the, the real thing about XDDB, you know, for me is its schemeless nature, its free form nature, the ability to put in documents of whatever form. So you can think with, with the early web, the document can be anything. Ah, yes, it had to start with HTML tag and body, but it was the freedom to just, nothing stopped you from kind of adding uh, the HTML language, very free form. And as new HTML tags came out, um, you could choose to use them. But the old browsers would still work. A remarkable thing about HTML was that um, you could change it. They could add new tags, and but the old browsers would still work. They would just ignore the old tags. And you, you know, I don't understand what marquee means, so I'll just ignore it. And so this flexibility within the web is what allowed it to evolve and thrive. So if you contrast that with uh, typical approaches for databases, they kind of force you very early on to say, you have to know upfront exactly what your structure is going to be, and that can never change. And if it does need to change, well, you have all these techniques like data full database migrations where you have to run scripts against your production data and hope and pray that that weekend the data migration works. So data migrations is not really, that's really a workaround for a problem that data evolution and schema and structure evolution in databases is not first class. Uh, the other problem is if you evolve structure and schema within databases, you quickly lose knowledge of what the previous schema was. All the data has to be upgraded. So the only schema that you can ever hold on to is the schema of now, today's latest schema. You don't have a memory. Uh, and so the, the memory loss of uh, databases is uh, something that's built in. Memory loss is important in databases when you've got very expensive disks in the 80s, but we have an, you update a row and you lose what the previous version of the row was. Um, but for, 
so there's there's two aspects i suppose i'm talking about having a, a long-term memory of your your evolution to be able to learn from that and um, but also the ability to be quite fluid with your and, and evolve your structure um, which is common to the early web and also common to uh, the, the the closure language which i mentioned which has this idea that instead of type writing up your um, when you write in a, a, a language like Java or C Sharp, you very often write uh, classes. So classes are really the, the you know, the, the analog to a, a relational table. You have to know upfront, I want this class to keep the name and the address and the date of birth of my customer. And you have to know upfront. And if you were to change your mind or evolve your structure, then you have to do a kind of migration of your classes. You have to go and change your classes and change your code. So. I, I feel that just in uh, I, I feel that languages that force you to couple your structure with the code itself, you know, these languages that are, are very strongly typed, um, uh, actually have a disadvantage in that you couple yourself to one version of, of your structure. And, and I think code and structure, or code and form, as I call it, should be independent, decoupled, and free to evolve independently. So that, those are the kind of background uh, yeah. that, you know ideas behind xttb so xttb is a very much a database of that era of that mindset that you should be able to be free to put documents in and then evolve and realize through through recognizing patterns later on that say oh these three four documents really look like the same thing just in in the same as in the multiply pro, um, product you kind of understand all oh, these these documents should all belong to a tag and I need to evolve my tags and I, mm. I so everything is free form you're not having to when you decide on a tag structure in multiply you have the freedom later on to change your mind and to change it and evolve it you're not it's not a straitjacket forever that you've you have to you have to think up front so it it, it evolves and everything you know it, it evolves at the same cadence as uh, the you know human understanding, and that's what we want our tools to do. They need to they need to support our uh, our ability to evolve our understanding, our, our ability to make mistakes, to to um, yeah to to refine and to change our mind sometimes. Can I just cut in there just to define for those that are um, even less uh, you know technically experienced than I am? And so there are two terms in there that I think are maybe worth defining, and one of them is schema. Um, and the other one is kind of relational database and relational table. So I'll, I'll just give a try. And then you guys who are actually have an engineering degree will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so for me, the best way to explain schema is thinking of like an Excel or Airtable spreadsheet. And the schema is the columns. So maybe your first column says, you know, date and the second one says project. And this is a list of tasks. So every new task you add as a row in that spreadsheet has the same schema because it has the same columns. In the first column, I put date. In the second one, I put the name of the project it belongs to. And that allows me to filter it, etc. Would you guys agree that that's an okay definition of a schema? It's a great definition of a schema. Yeah, or yeah. example, maybe. Yeah. And then the second one, relation, sorry, go on. Oh, like I would just, yeah, I think it's a good example because I, I would like to then um, explain what, just imagine for a second if you had a spreadsheet and you had to only write the columns first you weren't allowed to write any rows in the data you'd have to come up you know the row one you have to put in bold all your column names and you had to set the types you know the the format type you'd have to set whether something was a date or string and um 
and if uh, before you could fill out any row. And then later on, if you wanted to change any column, imagine you had to call up a developer and it would take them two weeks to, to change that column. They would, you, you know, and then they would ring you back and say, yeah, we, we did a new release. Uh, we were able to change the column H to from date to number. And you say, thanks very much, I and you carry. Just imagine what working with a spreadsheet would be like if those were the constraints. It would be, I don't think spreadsheets would be as popular as they are today. No, really not. And like, I think like the main point there for me is, and I've built a couple of companies before, is that it's actually a lot harder to change those than you think, like you say, the two weeks, especially as the product grows more complex. And to go back to the definition of the relational database, at least with my understanding, is the relational database is basically a set of those tables. It's a bunch of those tables that refer to each other such that the project column in my task list, my task spreadsheet, refers to a project table because the projects have different columns. And since in a classical kind of relational database setup, you have all these tables. And if you change something somewhere, it will actually uh, you know, uh, necessitate the change across all the tables that um, are referred to or refer to it. Um, would you guys like, is that a good visualization of it? Do you think a relational database? I don't want to get stuck with definitions, but I think maybe it's worth, worth understanding because I think it provides context and kind of a visual uh, cue to, to relate to all the, all the insights you have behind XDDB. Yeah, yeah I, I do think so. I, I think the, um, I, I would like to say it, it, tables are pretty good, but it's the, the having to, uh, I mean, they, they naturally, you know, it's good to sometimes categorize knowledge and put them into tables. Where the, where the problem lies is having to upfront decide all the column names and all the column, the columns that a table uh, represents. We call those aggregated types, you know, that the, um, you have to decide. Aggregate means, comes from the, the, the Latin aggregare to, to travel together. So you have to decide which data fields are going to travel together for the life cycle of your your database which may be years and years and years and um, but the the point of traveling together means sometimes you know um us three might get on a train and we travel to stockholm and then we leave stockholm and rasmus goes off onto a bus to go you know to go home and i go and visit a museum we you know we travel together for periods of our time and then we we mm. um we diverge and so um, deciding the things that are going to travel together for all time is, is a, you know, a quite a brutal constraint when you're you're doing information engineering. So, uh, yeah, yes. And I was also going to mention it would be every time the developer changes that column H, they also have to change column H in every other spreadsheet that you've made in the last 10 years. And that's why it takes more than two weeks because they have to uh, orchestrate this huge data migration too. So I think this what we what we are trapped in is this too rig, too rigid notion of uh, you know information design uh, where it doesn't allow us to to make mistakes and change our mind and that is the real straitjacket and that's why uh, our information systems I think are very poor. Yeah, and just to cut out that, because sorry, Martin, like because I think you miss one thing that is like where we are most passionate about XTDB at Multiply and. And because you basically mentioned that the, the flexible document nature of it, which means that it can function as a relational database, but it can evolve, right? So that was kind of the first thing. But you, we also like XTDB is also a graph database in, in the link. So I just want to like ask you, and this I'm really curious, like 
the way we use XTDB, at least, I'm not sure if it's default or not, um, is that all links are bidirectional. And if you look at the web today, all links are unidirectional. You link from somewhere to somewhere else, but that link doesn't turn up on the website you link to, for you know, good and bad, of course. Um, what was that? Was it always like that, like with unidirectional links? And would you say that's that's a fair way to sort of describe the last kind of point about XTDB? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a that huge debate about this in knowledge man management circles. There's a good book by Tim Berners Lee, who who was one of the uh, you know the author of the World Wide Web. It's called Weaving the Web, and he talks about this decision he made to make. Uh, links unidirectional and it has to do partly with having a very distributed web it's very hard in an, what we call an open system to do bidirectionality uh, and there was uh, there was sort of competing webs around one was by you know ted nelson and xanadu which had had the bidirectionality part of it so bidirectionality is very hard to achieve in a in an open environment but uh, so that's why uh, but it has benefits so that's why bidirectionality is is possible to do in a closed database where all of your data is in a, in a single place if you try to uh, scale it up to the the globe then it's much harder to do because you have lots of performance issues and constraints so in order to unleash the web it was important to uh, relax one of those constraints and, and allow links to be one way Mm, but but you're saying that in the ideal world, the, the web would be the bidirectional as well, with, with all links also also being backlinks. backlinks. Well, it's a gr it's a very useful property to be able mm. to see backlinks. Yeah, and there has been attempts to do this through you know the um, uh, you know a bank click back a backlink detection in. Yeah. Uh, but often you'll see those are in single websites and and. And it was uh, a big um, part of the of the blogosphere. Which is like when, when, uh, fifteen years ago, when that when blogs grew into a big network of, of collaboration, that uh, they, a standard appeared to automate yeah. backlinking. Yeah, 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 and uh, yeah, it was something that was retrofitted on later on because it definitely mm. has value. Yeah, um, yeah. awesome. So, um, and XDB is a is a graph database. Do you want to talk about what that is? Well, I think you can if you if you define a graph database as be, the as being a, a really a, a network between um, nodes, which we call entities and edges. So there, a graph is really just this kind of collection of relationships. Um, in fact, you can build a graph just by having um, point to point relationships. You know, if you, you can you can a spider web. You can just draw a spider web just by drawing lines. Right? You're drawing points. Um, so those relationships are um, those relationships are all uh, information carrying, and they're, they're kind of that. But they are the uh, every individual node in that graph is free to form whatever relationships it likes. So it is not constrained to the table that it's in, or the, only can only do foreign keys to a, a, another category of, of data. It's it's really very free form, um, and it allows you to. Uh, it's particularly good for modeling things that are very uh, graph-like. And, and I think most data is graph-like. It's just you, you discover relationships all the time between things that you didn't know up front. So graphs are very flexible for that, that reason. But they are when there is some limitations. Um, and that there is a uh, the, the style that we use in XTDB is called the property graph. So we have 
we have documents, which are a document I should just define as being a set of named named values. So mm. like, you know, ad- my name is Malcolm. Yeah. 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 And, and some of those values might be, you know, my friend is Martin. And so that is a, that is a relationship with somebody mm. called Martin, not all Martins, um, but a particular Martin. So that is, so w- uh, we say that every value can optionally just be the identity of some other document mm. in, in the, in the database. And that gives you, I suppose is it's, it's true to say, yes, you can build graph-like uh, information models on this. You can also decide that all your documents you're going to put in are going to obey a certain constraint or a certain mm-hmm. schema, that, that, you know, and you, that that's a, something that a user can decide. So it does allow you to have, I'd like to say, the best of both worlds. It does allow you to flex, your, depending on your information model, whether it's more structured or less structured. Um, and sometimes your information model is a little bit of both. And that's the that's the problem. So you mm. need something. You need a database underneath that is going to uh, be as flexible as as your app needs to be. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like because if um, the way I, I sometimes pitch multiply to someone who want to understand it deeply um, is that it's three things, and uh, they actually tie very nicely into uh, you know of course XTDB and of course closure as well. Um, and then the third thing I think can lead lead us on to uh, our next topic. But the first two. I pitch uh, when I explain it deeply is that it's fully flexible. Like we built a flexible actually MVC model, model view controller. Uh, so enabled by XTDB because we can basically define, you know, different, um, what was the word you used? Just uh, the document has a, not a type, but a, a certain structure. A, yeah, uh, a property, property graph. A property, yeah. Okay, so we define these properties and they can be like, you know, the columns in a spreadsheet on a data level, on the on the data model level in the MVC framework, on the view level it can be oh this is going to be a list or this is going to be a table, uh, or this is going to be a Kanban board, um, and then uh, on the top level it's like what are the actions uh, enabling users to actually put in you know for simplicity let's imagine buttons, and this button does a certain thing and it it has access to all the different commands in, in, in multiply. So you can say this button creates an article, for example. Uh, and then the second thing is the global graph nature of multiply, which means that anything on multiply is linkable with bidirectionality. Uh, so those are like just like relating concretely for those who've listened to the podcast before to, to what we're building at multiply and why we've chosen XTDB uh, to do it. Uh, and the third thing I pitch, which I think I really want to hear your view on, on Martin, is that because we have a flexible semantic data model, semantic meaning that everything has a clearly defined and easily understandable meaning. This is the uh, due date of a task. The due date means something, it's semantic. Uh, Because we have that and because we have, that means purpose. So for example, this is the introduction semantically to an article. Uh, And then we have this graph, which means that it provides context. So this article is created uh, from the transcript of this podcast, you know? So it links back to the podcast transcript. Uh, and then it has the introduction, that article is the first thing. That means that we both have purpose and context automatically available um, and actually self-organized. 
which allows the foundation for autonomy when we come to AI, which is, I think, why people listen to this podcast and we should get into, get into some AI. So like, that's our kind of uh, you know, high-level thinking on why what we're building is, is, is quite unique. Um, and the reason we've gone into this before, but just to sort of give you a step into it, Martin, uh, sorry, um, Malcolm, is that because we have automatic purpose and context for the AI expressed in a way it can understand, you know, this is the introduction to an article uh, that is written based on the linked transcript from the podcast co-creating with AI. Uh, then the AI can understand what you want to do without you telling it, which enables us to build all these apps in our app store, uh, but also allows users to create it themselves. And, you know, soon our apps will move on to be have more and more autonomy and we'll probably call them agents. Uh, so just like with that kind of, I don't know, you take the frame you want, but just like that's our frame. Like, what do you think about XTDB and the co-creative internet now in the age of AI, uh, which you can, of course, take a lot of different lenses to, and I can suggest a few, but, but just to hear your general thoughts. Like, uh, I guess you've been thinking a lot about AI with, with XTDB as well lately. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh... Yeah, a few things there that stick out. Um, I think context is is so undervalued. Uh, if, I mean, if you were to, you know, take any book and just open it up and see a paragraph, you you could argue, as I do, that every even paragraphs in books, it would be ideal if there was an unique global identity for everything. So everything, every even sentences and paragraphs in paperback books should be addressable. Right? You should be, and that was. I think that was a, a property of the web that was really uh, kind of interesting with respect to other forms of information creation like word processing and, you know, it's a Microsoft Word where you write a big document, you you save it as some file name and the identity of that file name is sort of my doc underscore v1 underscore final underscore final dot doc and, and sitting on some SharePoint somewhere. It's just a very woolly identifier and it probably wouldn't survive. The, the thing that the web allowed you to do is to put named anchors anywhere you liked in your document. That A tag that you can say href, you can also say name. And that then allows you to create a bookmark, uh, in, uh, which is a globally addressable bookmark. So identification is incredibly important. Identify every sort of scrap of information that allows an AI to go right at to, to be able to address that information uniquely, right, and not get confused as it's actually another piece of information. But another thing that, that actually you need is context. If you opened up a book and you looked at a paragraph and you started reading it, you know, and you know, Mary said to Philip, uh, "I don't love you anymore." Right? What's the? Who's Mary? Who's Philip? What's the context? What's the period? It doesn't. It, it tells you something, right? But it actually gives you more questions. And the only way you can answer those questions is through capturing context. Now, the context is there because you're sitting there with the book. With a paragraph, you can start flicking through the chapters. You could read the introduction. That's what an AI can do if you give it context. Um, but if you don't give it context, if you have I, just addressability without context, then you lose you lose that. I think I see this problem quite a, quite often in relational databases where you have column names. I had a, I was uh, managing a, a very large risk aggregation distribution system in a bank, and we had database tables which would have columns that said CCY. I can tell you that means currency, but I can't tell you <laughs> what the context is. You'd have columns that called X and Y, because in risk it's full of 
data points. X could be a tenor point in a, a yield curve, or it could be a, a, in some context a strike price. Or you know, so you have this kind of complete. Uh, you have in, data that is devoid of context, is meaningless, right? And and uh, that doesn't help a, an AI. AI thrives on being able to recreate meaning from context. And so I think these are absolutely foundational pillars that you have to have to unleash AI. And I think you're absolutely right on the money with identifying uh, you know, identity, addressability, and context as being the key building blocks. It doesn't, it's not satisfactory. There are probably other things that you need, but um, you know, these are absolutely key, key building blocks that you can't build a, an effective system without. Yeah, thanks, Malcolm. And uh, we, uh, we are also moving towards a paradigm where, um, where, uh, right, where, where we are right now, the AI is operating within the structure the user has created. And what we are moving into the paradigm of the AI co-creating the structure as well as the content. And, and that, that's uh, very exciting. And, and the, <clears throat> because of the, and the foundation of the, of the philosophy behind Multiply is sort of a content schema quality, that the, the changing the schema should be as easy uh, and accessible in the user experience as changing the content. Like changing the data and the schema should be on an equal level. And right now, it's it, we've made a thorough effort to make that equal uh, for the user. And the next step is to do that. Uh, for the AI as well to make that equal to change, make it equally easily for for the AI to change the, the content and the schema. Yeah, I, I've learned a lot through actually just having um, uh, Rasmus onboarded me as a kind of early adopter to to Multiply. So I've had a few, um, you know, I had some fun with it and had some some time to get more acquainted with the tool. And, and I, I've um, I've learned quite a lot from it. And I've, I've but I've one of the things I've been talking about for a long time is the. The need for developers, because I'm a software developer, so I'm, from my point of view, I'm saying that it's it's very important for developers to create systems that users can evolve and adapt without having to bring in the developers. And I think there are so many systems where developers are so ingrained into the change process that users are second class. If they you know they want the column changed, they have to ring up the developer. It's been good for developers historically because we've ended up having... Uh, having good jobs and we've been paid a lot because we're it's such an essential part of the process. But actually, I think there's a real uh, failing of the software development industry for humans to be so ingrained into the the process that it's become a very labor intensive process and with very little, I would say, automation. You know, we we call it uh, you know call these systems agile, and in fact, these agile systems. Uh, the agility comes from the fact that there are developers available, humans who can make changes quickly, right? That it doesn't mean that the system itself is agile. Often the system itself only supports today's current requirements and not tomorrow's current requirements. And sometimes that really doesn't mean tomorrow. Next year it means tomorrow, tomorrow. Um, so I, I feel that we've got to move away from the pyramid building with lots of uh, you know lots of human laborers uh, mm. approach to building software to one where we liberate users to make most of the changes themselves and my classic example is the spreadsheet when people use spreadsheets they're not ringing up microsoft excel developers all the time asking them to change the the spreadsheet when people 
um, there were applications just before the web actually I, I we used a, uh, an application system called Lotus Notes which some of your listeners might identify with a very poor email system uh, that we had in the early days and uh, Lotus Notes was a, a, a system where developers could create documents and create applications without having to you know, they, they sort of became power users and you could argue they became developers eventually, but there was this ease of being able to go from an idea to actually a really department level application. So I've seen it done, so I know it's possible, but I think we've gone far too far the kind of route of creating brittle applications that require constant attention by teams of developers. And we celebrate that as being, oh, we're responsive to change, and that's a good thing. You know, we, we've put good labels onto that. But actually, I, I'm, I'm very negative about where we've ended up with Agile. And so what I see in Multiply is a kind of going back to the, the tradition of Lotus Notes, of allowing users to, to make changes. But what I didn't realize, right, and what I've, what I've kind of came a bit late to the party, is that by user, we can also mean AI, right? Yes. So there's been a lot of activity of making... AI be the developer, right? Like Copilot in GitHub is a utility where the um, developer can, the, the AI can write the, the, the code for the developer. Um, I don't think that that you know that is going to um, that just perpetuates this uh, constant like two worlds of the users mm. and the developers. That actually just continues the misery of users, right? Yeah. It just means that, you know, I'm not sure whether you know, perhaps it means that the two-week wait can go down to two days, but it doesn't fundamentally address the problem. What fundamentally addresses the problem is building software, as you, you guys are doing, which liberates users to ba basically build their own structures and mm. applications and evolve the product and then you can invite an ai to the party and the ai can ha have ha have all of the the prompts and the context that the users have and so they can just join in and i think that's a much more natural fit for ai to to come in at the user level than in at the developer level yeah i really agree i think that's a really 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 nice point Mark, uh, malcolm and happy you're enjoying the product as well um so just like, I think it's interesting, just like relating back to maybe to sort of start, I guess, summing this up to the, uh, to the kind of co-creative internet, which was our idea for, you know, this, this podcast and what to talk about is, I think it's really like, if you look at it, like just relating back to what you said, the limitation is if you need to be a developer, if you need to have a special skill set in order to be a co-creator. Right? We discussed that a lot. And AI is so interesting because it has the power to make things so much simpler uh, for anyone to be a co-creator of the product they're using, of their software, etc. And I think that's really like also relating back to what Martin said, like that's what we've we, we're actually just doing it ourselves now, together with a select number of like app creators, but since we're building this AI natively, the AI can actually create the structure inside Multiply, which means that I don't have to be a power user in order to utilize the flexibility we built, which, you know, is still not something that everyone would do. But with an AI, with a natural language interface, which is the like maybe the most beautiful thing about AI, is that it can understand just a normal person speaking or writing and thereby allowing them to be a co-creator uh, of, of the product they're using. 
So I, I really think like that's at least a fundamental reason why the co-creative internet has not maybe been possible before AI. Yeah. You know, like just thinking back to, you know, 20, 30 years ago and Lotus Notes, etc. Like I've heard really good things about the people who did use it, uh, from the people who did use it. Um, but it was still like the journey of, as you said, maybe going from not being a developer to being a developer. Whereas, so that's still like a steep learn, actually maybe they did it well, but like a learning curve to go to being one of those special people, one of the magicians of the technology age, you know? Uh, whereas AI maybe just means that I don't have to go up and become a developer. I can stay who I am and where I am with my skill set and still be a co-creator because the AI can make it so much simpler. And that's not even, of course, taking into account kind of the collaboration aspect of it, which I think we've been meaning to dive into for a while, like how, how AI can not only enable productivity, but, but collaboration. But I think maybe that will be another episode. But that, that was just what came up to me from hearing both of you speak. Yeah, that, that's nice. I, I think I, I can't remember Lotus Notes too well. It was a long time ago. But I think you could become a power user simply by using the tool, just by spending more time with the tool. And I think that's a good test. If in order to become a power user, you have to go and go on a course or read a book or get a, you know, then that takes a degree of effort. Uh, so I think there's two tests. You know, the first is, is, is there, is there a, is just by using, like you're, you know, playing a game, you know, people who play a game, they get better at the game and they can defeat the final level boss and they can do all of that and get all of the skills that they need by playing the game. They don't have to go off and read a book about you know, watch YouTube videos. I'm sure that's a bad example because most people do watch YouTube videos to work out how to play. But, you know, in theory, you can just play the game. And I think that, that it's just by spending time. I think where AI can also help is by in when we were learning how to be power users, we were often doing it on our own and making mistakes. And I think having somebody sitting next to you saying, try this or, you know, that's right, or working at your level, having your an own personal tutor um, that understands you know, I think education is going to be transformed by AI because it takes the individual from where they are. You're not treating a class of students and you're trying to, you know, one teacher with 30 students is assuming that every student is at the same level and they're all ready to go up to the next step. And we know that that's not true. So the, I think where AI is transformative is that it can be personal and it can be forgiving and understanding that, you, you know, where you are and trying to take you forward. Um, and I think that can be... That, that can be a, a, a useful thing for training people how to use software and get more, more out of software. And that might be the next, uh, the next innovation. Excellent. Thank you so much, Malcolm. Thank this you. has been an excellent conversation for me. I've, I've learned a lot. And um, especially what I, what I take away from this is how everything we do exists in the context from that, what came before. That uh, how much is informed consciously or subconsciously about what, what we've experienced in technology of the past. Yeah, yeah th thanks. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed uh, the conversation. It's been great. Yeah, thank you, Malcolm. Thanks a lot for, for coming on and, and uh, telling your story and uh, what you're doing now. Thank you very much. And thank you to the listener as well for being with us all the way to the end of the episode. Uh, this has been an episode of co-creating with AI and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what other guests we are um, bringing in in the future. If you have ideas, 
let us know at martin or rasmus at multiply.co and uh, tune in for the next episode to see what we're up to then.